0: This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from the lens, New Orleans' 1st nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, the state's latest official student count, released on Tuesday morning, gives the first detailed look at enrollment 10 months after the pandemic first shuttered schools, and it shows significant declines. In New Orleans' criminal court, the pandemic has created a situation where juries can no longer be convened. Much of the proceedings are taking place via Zoom, and many cases are stalled, leading to a clogged criminal justice system, which is at a breaking point, according to an attorney in the Public Defender's Office. Those stories, insight and analysis, coming up on Behind the Lens. On the podcast this week, education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. And criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel. Hey, Nick.
1: Hi, Carolyn.
0: And Lens Editor Charles Maldonado is here. Hi, Charles. Good
1: morning, Carolyn.
0: Marta, first up in education, public school enrollment is down 2.3% statewide and 3.3% in Orleans Parish compared to last spring. The numbers released this week are the first look at enrollment since COVID-19. In an effort to curb infections and protect adult school employees, school districts across the country have suspended in-person classes, either temporarily or for sustained periods of time, which has also caused an increase in student absenteeism. So Marta, what do officials think is causing the drop in enrollment here?
2: So more than half of that drop um, is coming in the the earlier years, in pre-kindergarten and kindergarten. And officials think that um, parents you know uh, the the state superintendent used the term red shirt that they decided to maybe red shirt their children and just start them a year later keep them home um, both for safety reasons and because that would be a little bit more of a predictable schedule Um, with schools having gone back and forth you know that's been chaotic for a lot of families
1: yeah and i would add i would add that uh, you know with schools closing and opening uh, a lot of a lot of daycares have remained open at least in this, you know, the last few months. Is, is that right, Marta?
2: Yeah, and even one of the um, state board members said that herself. She said she decided to keep her four-year-old in childcare, both because it was a smaller setting and, you know, she knew it was going to be open.
0: So it feels less risky to them, it is less risky to have them in a childcare situation than in a school which keeps changing and the, the numbers are higher there, or the, the number of contacts are higher there.
2: Right. Yeah. The ratios are higher once you get to the, the elementary level. Yeah.
0: This is difficult for you to answer, probably. I mean, this is an early childhood education thing. But um, keeping your kid back from school long, for longer, what is that long-term effect? Is there anything that you know about that?
2: I don't know much about what the academic effect would be. I, I assume if they're learning and progressing in their home environment, that that's not going to be so detrimental. I think it depends on what environment they're they're in when they're being if they're being held back you know some of the some of the daycare centers around here early childhood centers are have good curriculum and parents really like them because they offer good curriculum but if you're if you're in a place where you're being stunted I think that would be detrimental.
0: Go over the numbers for us compared to other states.
2: Sure so um, Chalkbeat and the Associated Press did a survey in December and they found that it, across 33 states um, enrollment was down about two percent. So we're, we're pretty much, the state is on track with that, but the district is seeing a little bit higher of a drop. Locally, we're down 1,600 students from last year.
0: And nearby, you have Mississippi.
2: Yeah, Mississippi um, was down 4.8% enrollment. So I don't know exactly what is happening there, but I think that's definitely concerning um, both for officials and for families. Marta, can I ask you something?
1: A lot of the explanations that we've heard from people on, on the state school board, Bessie, uh, and, and you know, Department of Education officials concerned this, you know, this sort of red-shirting phenomenon that you've talked about, as well as people, uh, you know, transferring their children to uh, to private schools, um, because private schools have, have remained uh, open more consistently than public schools across the state. But this also comes at the same time that we've seen, you know, some national research indicating that there are, you know, anywhere from one to three million kids across the country who are just plain unaccounted for in the schools, as well as, you know, this, we, we also recently reported on chronic absenteeism happening, uh, in, in Orleans parish. Is there, was there any concern that, that this is something that is perhaps, you know, more serious than than people starting their kids late in school or transferring to private schools.
2: Yeah, and I didn't mean to downplay that and just focus on red shirting. I think you're absolutely right. Um, people are just having less contact with, you know, systems overall. So I, I think part of that losing that early childhood enrollment is people who might not know how to sign up or where to sign up um, or have those contacts. And then also for older students. yeah. Having 1,600 students drop off the rolls is a lot. We know um, when we reported on chronic absenteeism that social workers are out looking for kids who are supposed to be on their books this year. You know, they even have their name. It's not that they weren't signed up or something. So there are students that are missing, and that is concerning. And then one other thing I forgot to mention, of course, which how could I forget this? But we, you know, we had those hurricanes this year, so that certainly affected enrollment in Calcasieu and Cameron Parish.
0: The effects of this, as far as funding goes, if they miss that state count day and then they their enrollment is down by X number of kids, that means X number of X amount of dollars that aren't in their coffers. Is that a lagger? So in other words, next year they won't receive the funding from the state. And if enrollment rises, they're doing less with they're doing more with less.
2: Yeah, so we do two state counts. There's one October 1st and one February 1st. Yep. So it kind of trues up a little bit. And I think generally the February one is a little bit higher just because people are, you know, children are essentially being found in the system and enrolled. Um, so that can help states out. But the funding does lag behind by six, about six months.
0: But don't they take the two numbers and put them together? And then do, do they allocate funding once a year?
2: They, they budget for you once a year and then based on what your October 1 count is, they adjust it, and then based on what your February 1 count is, they adjust it.
1: And, and then the, the actual funding comes in, in in monthly increments, is that right?
2: Right, it comes in monthly increments, but it's from it, what your yeah, population was six months yeah. ago, essentially. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's, it comes in monthly increments, but it's the, the level is set two times.
0: Okay, that's exactly what I was gonna ask, if it it's fluctuates based on what uh, the yeah. last count was. What a nightmare that would be. Yeah,
2: and what, and what you said about doing less with more, I mean, that's absolutely true. Um, I, probably the one, you know, if you're going to have 25 kids in a class and now you only have 23 kids, you still have to have that class. Um, probably the one saving grace here has been, uh, I think schools have saved on transportation this year. Oh, right. Meanwhile,
1: um, you know, we have this second count date coming up. And, uh, you know, today when we're recording this the day before we publish, today is Thursday, January 21st. We expected to hear some news later today about whether or not at least Orleans Parish is considering going back to in-person. Is that right?
2: Yep. So today is the day they said that the earliest that they would make any announcement. Um, We asked them yesterday, you know, what are the new metrics you're using? What are the new case counts? COVID-19 test positivity rates that you're using to decide whether or not to open school. Um, and they're gonna have a press conference later today. So we'll know more then.
0: Okay, so you haven't, they haven't answered those questions yet. What the <laughs> what the criteria is even, they're not even letting that out.
2: Right. It, the district made it sound like they were maybe gonna change the criteria, but they haven't said firmly whether they were doing that.
1: Okay. I, 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 I'm guessing the uh, press conference is sometime afternoon today.
2: Yes, it's at three.
1: Yeah, that's that's because you know, just for listeners, the state COVID data is going to be released at noon, so that is maybe something that they're taking into account.
0: Are teachers in the cohort that are getting vaccinated right now?
2: Uh, they can be in some certain certain circumstances, but um, I, a I think it's hard to get appointments in general, and. Um, be, it's just, you know, rolling out kind of slowly. There is not yet a concerted effort to vaccinate teachers, even though the district is, you know, getting names and numbers of people who are interested.
0: Okay. Right. So primarily the group that's being, that's being vaccinated now are basically, mostly on, on age and pre- age
2: and occupation, you know, frontline workers. And, you know, I think we saw the advocate reported yesterday that, hospital systems are going to start getting dinged if they're reserving their vaccines only for their patients. You know, because these are going out to private healthcare organizations.
1: Well, and and as far as school employees are concerned, we have seen uh, they have begun uh, vaccinating school nurses, right? Right.
0: All right. So more on that after the press conference today. Do you do you have a sense of whether or not you think they'll uh, open up again?
2: Um, I'm hearing the different things from different people. I think they're going to open to small groups of students or, you know, maybe like in phase one. That's just my guess is that they would open in phase one, which would mean classes of smaller than 10 people, including the instructor and potentially only for the lower grades. Um, but, you know, we'll know for sure later today. Even though we don't know exactly what's gonna happen this afternoon, we do know that the city's in a modified phase one for another week, so that certainly is gonna have, you know, some weight in this decision.
0: All right, thanks, Marta. Thank you. And an update on this story, New Orleans public schools will not return to in-person classes as the city of New Orleans COVID-19 outbreak remains classified as active or imminent, district officials announced at a press conference on Thursday afternoon. The city's schools will remain closed through at least the end of next week, at which time officials will review the latest data on COVID-19 infections. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are education reporter Marta Juson, criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Karen Gadwa, the co-founder and executive director of The Lens. The Lens is the New Orleans area's first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom dedicated to unique investigative and explanatory journalism. The strength of the Lens lies in the highly qualified editorial and research staff, as well as a collaborative network of affiliated organizations. Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at theLensNola.org donate. Thank you. Okay, Nick and criminal justice, public defenders in Orleans Parish are hopeful that a new reform-minded DA, Jason Williams, will help them come up with innovative ways to address the thousands of open cases that are clogging the dockets at criminal district court due to months of COVID-19 related court closures and suspended jury trials. Namely, by dismissing nonviolent low-level cases or sending defendants into a diversion program, which allows them to complete a court-ordered program in exchange for a later dismissal. Jason Williams has expressed some willingness to look back at cases, but some other players in the criminal justice apparatus aren't so sure about that. Why are there so many cases backlogged right now at criminal district court?
3: So the most uh, straightforward reason is just that um jury trials are no longer taking place. So so cases where defendants want to, to go to trial, don't want to take a plea deal, um, those cases can't move forward um, just because they can't can't convene juries. There's also all sorts of other, I think, logistical reasons why things are moving slowly right now. I know it's a, it sounds like communication is an issue. They're doing a lot of these things via Zoom. There's some in-person proceedings. Um, but I'm, I think that varies a lot um, from judge to judge. And it sounds like informing defendants, witnesses, victims, uh, and lawyers of, of, of hearing times and, and court dates has, has been a problem. So all those things are kind of combining just the things that I'm hearing.
0: Are there certain types of cases that are proceeding that are easier? I would imagine there's some that are easier to, to manage via Zoom. You know,
3: so, so some they have resumed doing plea deals. So some cases are being resolved through that. I'm not entirely sure why more aren't aren't being resolved that way. You know, I think usually a, a large majority of, of misdemeanor cases are are resolved via plea deal. Um, but I think I think the, they require you know hearings and hearing hearing evidence oftentimes even before a jury trial. Um, so I think getting all that into place has been has been a problem.
1: Well, yeah, and on top of just the, the sort of logistical challenges that this this has created, doing this by Zoom, getting people informed, you know, maybe certain offices in in the criminal uh, criminal district courthouse have not been operating at, at the level of efficiency that they may have before, just you know, due to you know staff being in and out. Also, you know, also a period right at the beginning of these court closures
3: where basically nothing at all was happening for a while, right? Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. It took a while to get, to get any Zoom proceedings up and running. Um, and I think, you know, the, the capacity for that has, has increased as, uh, as, as they've kind of figured out the technology aspect. Um, yeah, I mean, for a while there was no, uh, you know, they're still not transferring any, uh, detainees from the jail to court to do to for their hearings they're doing all those via zoom and and for a while i don't think they had that capacity in the jail to to um get uh detainees zoomed in for, for their hearings so those cases were, were all
1: yeah so a good deal of this i imagine is you know, we're still catching up from from march and april when people were still getting arrested cases were still getting created you know cases that were pending already needed to have these hearings, and none of that was happening. So just getting out from behind that on top of the fact that we're not having jury trials is just is, is a huge, huge hurdles to overcome
3: for the system, I imagine.
0: The Public Defender's Office has a proposal. What is that?
3: What, what I know is that they've been looking back at all their open cases and sort of doing an inventory of ones that they feel could uh, either be dismissed or diverted um, and these are cases that they say are nonviolent um, victimless crimes and and cases in which the defendant has been charged but has been out of out of custody for several months um, and not had any any more uh, issues or, or run into the law so the public defenders think that that one sort of simple fix for, for this is to just, get rid of those cases um they're not worth proceeding on and it would be more efficient for the system to to focus on the high profile cases so that's what they've been talking about i'm not entirely sure what step they are what 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 part of that process they're in it's my understanding that i don't believe that they've given any list to the district attorney's office yet saying like these are all the cases that that we want you to throw out but I know it's something that they're that they're thinking about,
0: and the DA's office, I'm sure, has a response to that idea.
3: The DA's office has been has not been particularly straightforward about what they are planning to do, um, and and they may still be figuring it out. One thing we do know is that they've been looking back at, at cases and rescreening them. The new DA, Jason Williams, has been in the past very critical of of former DA Leon Canizzaro's, um screening practices he said that they accepted far too many cases um cases where maybe the the evidence wasn't sufficient to to merit um a charge so when i when i talked to uh jason williams last week he he basically said these cases haven't been screened at all and so we're going back and looking at them to see what can be dismissed that way which is a slightly different thing from just looking at low-level cases and saying yeah maybe the evidence is there but but it's not worth proceeding These are cases where he doesn't really feel like um, the evidence merits moving forward with the case.
0: Mm.
1: Can can I ask you something? So, you know, he's talked about screening for a long time, um, you know, at least since, you know, 2016, 2017, when his relationship with Leon Canizero. Became uh, you know sort of sort of more openly hostile than it had been in the past. When he says the cases aren't being screened, and now now that they are being screened, like what does has he specifically talked about what procedures weren't followed under? the, the Cannizzaro administration and, and what pre- procedures are being instituted now?
3: No, this is something I followed up with the, the office about and I just I haven't heard back. You know, things he's talked about in the past are, one, he has talked about certain low-level cases and cases that are clearly stemming from mental health issues and drug addiction that he's not interested in prosecuting those. He's also talked about cases in which there is evidence of police misconduct uh, that he would would screen those out and wouldn't wouldn't accept cases where that was the case, and then uh, also yeah, as I mentioned, cases where, where the evidence you know maybe doesn't merit an arrest or a charge, and I think that kind of goes hand in hand with with uh, front end law enforcement uh, and how police are making decisions about who to arrest and who to um, yeah bring in.
0: And so that brings up a, a question about the police and and how they're responding to all of this. What do other players have to say?
3: So I talked to Mike Glasser, who's the president of the Police Association of New Orleans. And I, I actually talked to him, um, you know, shortly after Jason Williams was elected. You know, he said that basically he, he's not in favor of simply declining to prosecute cases because they aren't um, of a certain level. He, he said that it's, it kind of implied that it's not the DA's place to be deciding what the, what the laws are, that's a legislative task, and that he doesn't believe that it, would, that it would be productive for community safety to, to you know, stop prosecuting low-level crimes.
0: Do we verge on uh, constitutionality issues at all with, with people who are just being held without speedy trial?
3: You know, this so the speedy trial statute has been kind of waived due to the pandemic These circumstances. And I'm not quite sure where we are at with that right now, but it was waived for some time.
0: Yeah, I was wondering if any of the any defendants' attorneys were arguing about that.
3: I know. I mean, I know it is definitely being being discussed, but I I
1: suspect that we are going to see. You know, once we kind of work our way through this backlog, we're going to see. A lot of action on that in the appellate courts.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure it's be I'm sure it's the same uh, story in in courts across the country. Oh, yeah, definitely. What's going on with personnel at his office? He had he had said he was asking everyone to reapply, and is he doing that?
3: Yeah, so he has made sort of some initial hiring decisions, which he announced last week when he hired a first assistant uh, who's kind of you know second in command in his office uh, Bob White who was the former first assistant in Plaquemines Parish and he announced Emily Ma um, would be running his civil rights division who we we knew uh, that that was going to happen and then he announced I think that there were kind of 10 attorneys in in various leadership positions that that he was letting go but a large number of, of the uh assistant district attorney sort of the trial level prosecutors he said would would be staying up.
1: i noticed uh one, one of the people who is who is leaving was uh the Canizaro's chief of trials david pipes right yes he was indirectly involved in some of the uh you know the scandals of the past few years he was a and i believe he still might be i'm not uh, i'm not entirely sure but he was a named defendant in the fake subpoena federal civil civil
3: uh, rights lawsuit that's still ongoing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and, and another prosecutor, in, uh, who was named in that case, Jason Napoli, um, he uh, resigned and, and is now, uh, I believe, practicing in Black church as well.
0: All right. Well, thank you all for your great reporting this week. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. Yep.
3: Bye bye.
0: This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week education reporter Marta Juson, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastel, and lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news along with opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.